Hello and welcome to another episode of Mere Fidelity, where we have conversations about life, theology, the church, and the culture. My name is Derek Rishmaui, and I'm joined once again by most of the cast and crew, Alistair Roberts and Matthew Lee Anderson. And we're also joined by a special guest, uh, Sam Alberry, uh, well-known author, works with RZIM Ministries currently, written plenty of uh, great books and uh, just a great partner in the gospel. We are glad to have you on today. Uh, Sam to talk especially about your new book seven myths about singleness. So welcome to the show Sam Thank you so much for having me. It's good to good to be joining you Yeah, this I feel like this is a long time coming wanting to have you on for a while and this book seemed like a perfect opportunity So I just want to jump into it and ask. Okay, so seven myths about singleness What 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 are you trying to tackle here, Sam? It's it's maybe a little opaque from the title. What do you, well, what? I'm I'm working on the assumption that that <laughs> we've we've misunderstood singleness in some significant ways in the in the church generally, both in the UK and in the US. And so, I'm wanting to show the ways in which actually the the Bible surprises us in what it says about singleness. And I'm assuming that if we've misunderstood singleness, it's probably because we've misunderstood marriage in certain ways as well. So it's it's really designed to be not just a book by a single person for single people, but a book by a single person, I hope, to help the whole church think more biblically, um, more healthily about singleness. Okay, so pastorally, I think, what's what are some of the most common mistakes you see folks making in talking about singleness or thinking about singleness in the church? Um, I think the most prevalent one really is that, that singleness is, is a lesser form of a Christian life, um, that it's, it's either bad for you or it's, you're just kind of a sub-Christian if you're single. Um, I think one of the big issues is people assuming if I'm married now, I don't ever have to think about singleness ever again. Uh, when the reality is over half the people who are married now are going to be single again. And so it's it's not an issue that loses its relevance the moment a ring goes on your finger. So mm. I think people either assume they don't need to think about it, or if they do think about it, they're thinking about it in probably very negative terms, whereas the Bible would, I think, give us a more positive picture of it in general. Mm -hmm. Sam, can I ask about that? I mean, you you describe the Bible as giving a more positive picture of singleness. Um, I'm interested in, one, just the term singleness, um, why we would speak of that as a, as a kind of category theologically versus um, celibacy or chastity or some of the other categories that have been kind of more traditional, uh, more traditionally used within um, theology. So that's one question. I think the the second question is, um, it seems like the New Testament doesn't just speak favorably about singleness, but actually in some ways can be read as prioritizing it, right? As saying that it's, it's actually a, um, a superior state to being married. Um, is that... How did we end up with the the conclusion that it's lesser than being married? And do you think that the New Testament does actually frame singleness as a superior state? Thank you. I think in terms of language, I'm, I'm using singleness to refer to 
what we have historically described as being celibacy. Um, it's interesting, as I was writing, I was using words like celibacy and being chaste and abstinence. And it, it hit me how how old-fashioned those words sound. They sound like they're from, from Downton Abbey. Um, and I guess it's because we don't have those concepts in the contemporary world today. So we have to use kind of old language in order to describe what we mean. But I'm by singleness, I'm meaning not just the state of being unmarried, but being unmarried and celibate and chaste in the way we steward our own our own sexuality. So I, I'm not just meaning singleness as being, hey, I'm not married, but I'm still free to play the field and, you know, have one night stands and that kind of thing. But singleness, as the Bible would have us um, express it, which is is to be celibate. So I'm I'm using the, those words slightly interchangeably, I guess, in in the course of the book. Singleness is a more familiar on ramp, I think, for most people today. But I, I want them to be clear what we then mean by it when we get into the into the New Testament. And I think the reason for us having a, a more of a negative view is probably I think we've been more influenced by our culture than we realise, and our culture is making. Um, an awful lot of noise and fuss over being romantically and sexually fulfilled and seeing that as being the kind of primary means of self-actualization, of fulfillment, um, of transcendence in our culture today. So we've, we've very much made that a central focus. And therefore, the idea of, of being without romantic and sexual fulfillment is seen, I think, actually, in, in our culture as being... S- pretty subhuman. You're you're actually diminishing your humanity by not giving full expression to your sexual and romantic longings. Um, And I think we've we've probably absorbed more than that in the church than we we tend to realize. So I think we need to do some some readjusting in the light of that. I think that's why the Bible now hits us on these things as quite surprising. And as you say, Paul, Paul commends singleness very strongly in in 1 Corinthians 7 and in terms of it being superior Paul I don't think Paul would say it's superior in all ways for all purposes I think he is saying in the sense that you can be devoted to Christ in a way that is undivided singleness is clearly advantageous Um, that is not to demean those who are married as being you know, compromised or worldly or less spiritual. It's simply a, a reality that the way in which we give ourselves to Christ if we're single is with far greater flexibility. We're being pulled in fewer directions than would be the case if we're married. So if that's if that's our focus in that regard, singleness is better. Yeah, I think I think I've been spending a lot of time with Augustine uh, and Augustine's sexual ethics over the last week and a half. And this is one of the points that Augustine just bends over backwards multiple times to try to make. Look, saying X is better than Y does not indicate that Y is bad. It doesn't diminish Y. Um, It means that Y, in fact, is still good. But there is a comparative claim uh, that can be made about these things in certain respects and in certain dimensions. you, You do, however reject the language of gifts. So so one of the myths that you point out is that singleness requires a special calling, that people think that there is a kind of call to singleness. I noticed in your discussion of that, 
Um, you didn't talk much that I could see about Matthew 19, um, where Jesus, you know, speaks of those who have been um, made eunuchs by nature, those who make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And, you know, this is hard saying, and, and only a few, it seems like, are going to be able to hear that. And that seems to, in one sense, narrow the kind of uh, community of people who would undertake singleness as a kind of um, uh, life where there is a sort of special giftedness to it. Um, so I'm just curious what you what you make of Matthew 19 and, and how we should think about giftedness in that way. Yeah, thank you. I think Matthew 19 is, is very important. Jesus is showing us that some people's devotion to the kingdom of God will mean that they choose to be celibate. In other words, they will see a means of serving the kingdom that will, will necessitate remaining single. Um, so there is clearly a sense in which some people will be called to singleness because of the particular way they want to serve in the kingdom. I can think of people on the mission field or people in particular contexts where actually they're going to need to be single in order to serve in the particular way they feel called to serve. What I don't want to do is to is to kind of read that into 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul talks about the gift of singleness and the gift of marriage. Um, because I think one of the one of the things we've done over the years in the Christian world is we've said, well, you should only stay single if you have the gift of singleness and if you've been called to it. And I want to allow for the fact that God does wonderfully call some people vocationally to singleness, but not in a way that demands that of anyone else who may end up being single long term. Otherwise, we end up in the situation which I've seen a number of times pastorally where people will enter into unbiblical relationships and they will justify it on the basis that, well, I, I'm not called to singleness and this is the only alternative at the moment. So we want to honour Matthew 19 and encourage that without constraining 1 Corinthians 7. When I hear the current debates around singleness and the conversation more generally, in many respects it seems to be a particularly modern conversation. These aren't conversations that people were having in quite the same way in the past. And part of it concerns the um, form of society that we're living in today that is quite anomalous, that's quite different from the sort of society that you'd find in the New Testament or elsewhere. And other parts of it just concern deeper cultural assumptions. So, for instance, the assumption of self-realisation or the idea that my meaning in life is to be found primarily in what I achieve as an individual in my personal happiness, that sort of thing. What are some of the ways in which you see this um, shaping the way that we talk about this? How do you sweep away some of those assumptions? And how do you um, provide biblical alternatives to those ways of viewing things? Yeah, I, th I think I agree with with your observations. I think we've, we've turned sexuality and, and by extension marriage and singleness into, again, that the the big cultural agenda of self-actualization, self-expression, self-fulfillment, um, self-identity being primarily based on desires. Um, and so I think we, it, is, it is those assumptions that, that 
lead a lot of people to have a very negative understanding of singleness. So we do need to, to question those assumptions and to hold them up alongside the New Testament vision of discipleship and how actually Jesus calls us to self-denial, not to self-expression, that, that human sexuality in the context of marriage is, again, it's not about self-expression or self-fulfillment. It's about service in, in 1 Corinthians 7, that you regard your body as being for the sake of, uh, to some extent, owned by, <laughs> belonging to your spouse, um, and that there's a beautiful mutuality to that. So sex in the New Testament seems to be about self-giving, uh, self-donation. Culturally, we've made it about self-expression and self-actualization. And so we've, I think we've got to get behind those assumptions in order to make sense of why the New Testament says some of the things it says. Because if actually the way I fully realize myself is in denying self, taking up my cross and following Jesus, then it doesn't matter ultimately if I feel sexually fulfilled, if I'm romantically involved, if I'm married or if I'm single. The key thing is that I'm being a, a faithful disciple. That's that's the overriding uh, message in the New Testament. And I, it, it's beautiful, it's, it's paradoxical, it's highly countercultural. But I love this idea that as we deny self and follow Christ, we actually become the self-God always intended us to be. We become more our real selves. We we become self-realized actually through self-denial. Um, so I think if we can recapture that, that biblical understanding of discipleship, that will help just give us a different starting point for how we then think about singleness, celibacy, marriage, and all those sorts of things. And I think that that's going to help both married people and single people, because if if married people are expecting their marriage to be a means of self-realization and self-fulfillment you know, fulfillment and all those things, that's going to lead, I, I presume, to a very, a very difficult marriage. Um, <laughs> whereas if we realize the focus of all of those things is Christ, then actually it gets all those other things in, a, I think, a much healthier and biblical proportion. That's helpful. A lot of that's people, helpful. I think, within our current context have spoken about things like the idolatry of the nuclear family and things along those lines. I don't find that language particularly helpful. Um, but when we think about the nuclear family, a lot of it is shaped by a particular cultural position, situation that starves us of the greater network of sociality that we would previously have enjoyed. And so I wonder about when we're talking about singleness, so much of what we're trying to do is trying to fill a gap that's a cultural creation. It's not just ideas. It's the fact that within the modern world, the only lifelong companion you'll have is probably your spouse. And if you don't have a spouse, then you just do not experience lifelong belonging and companionship. Families uh, last for a short period of time and then everyone goes their separate ways as they leave the nest. But that's a very modern situation. And I wonder, how do we speak to this particular modern situation? Not just saying, okay, scripture talks about the importance of singleness, but singleness as we experience it is an unusual phenomenon. And how can we speak to the not goodness of that and maybe move back to something that's a bit more healthy in terms of a, a wider sociality? Yeah, I, I I entirely agree. And 
it strikes me that one of the again one of the cultural factors at the moment is the idea that the the nuclear family is meant to be self-contained and self-sufficient and once you have your your life partner and any offspring you you kind of pull up the drawbridge and now you have the basic unit in which you do your life and i think you're right that the new testament presumes and commends a, a wider sociality um Typically, that would have been through both extended family, but also through the community of of a of a church body as well. And so, I think we need to honour the nuclear family, but honour it in a way that sets it alongside the obligations we have to our spiritual family as as members of a as of members of a local church. So, in in that sense, we you know I think the vision the New Testament gives us is one of having a tangible felt sense of family within the local people of God so that whether you have your own biological nuclear family or not, you're not left on your own. You actually, you have a matrix of, of rich and deep committed relationships, you know, through which you, you do life, people that you, you serve, people that your life bends around, people that you have obligations to, um, so I think on one hand we've we've shrunk our our kind of our view of of relationship again to the nuclear family and and specifically to the the kind of romantic partner but I think even where we do then have a some concept of a of a wider circle in which we do life we often then conceive that in terms of these are people who are meant to make me feel fulfilled and complete rather than thinking Actually, my the the gift of these people is that they give me a sense of obligation. Um, there are other people that I need to revolve my life around, which we discover in the New Testament is actually the way in which we, you know, exercise our Christian discipleship. It's the way in which we we practice our Christ likeness, and that ultimately is going to be the the way to joy. Um, whereas we tend to assume quite a consumerist view of relationship and community, and think well. I want all the feels, but I don't want commitment. Um, mm. And the, the big danger of singleness, certainly for as I've experienced it, is it, it can it can become so easy to become selfish, precisely because we're thinking, "Hey, I'm I'm not tied down. My life isn't kind of I don't I don't have the same fixed commitments that I would have if, if I was married," which then actually means we're not committed to people we're not committed to a locality we're not committed to a to a community sam I, I i appreciate so much of what you say i think you know this is an issue where i probably come apart from uh, a lot of people listening to the podcast differ from alistair probably differ from you i find the language of idolatry for the nuclear family to be very helpful i think it pokes and prods people at an area where they uh, have unquestioned assumptions um uh, in a way that I think you're doing as well, but but without going that that far. I think the reason for that, by the way, is I I've noticed that I think there's a, there's an appropriate use of idolatry for this because it it's an instance where we we turn a good thing into an ultimate thing. So that that's why I think there's an appropriate category for idolatry. What I've noticed in practice is the moment, particularly in a U.S. context, uh, you talk about the idolatry of family, you are you're immediately heard to be, a, you know, someone who's adopted critical theory, 
cultural Marxism and no one's then listening to what you're actually trying to say. So sometimes I think there's a, there's a benefit in, in getting the concepts across without some of the trigger language that will shut down some people from actually hearing the challenge that they might need to hear. Well, maybe. I mean, I, like, again, this hmm. is probably, we don't have to talk about all this, but um, I'm, I'm, I'm unwilling to yield to what I think are uncharitable readers in that way, right? Um, I think when we, when we talk about the idolatry of the family, particularly, um, it's most clear, in my experience, when you start poking at things like in vitro fertilization. And I think what you see is when you start really challenging um, means of bringing children into this particular family unit, you get pushback in a way that you even don't get, I think, when talking about the legitimacy of singleness for people's forms of lives. And so from my standpoint, like there's just no other term that's biblical, if we want to use biblical terms to speak about the kinds of attitudes that arise within family relationships uh, around children and around marriage. Um, but but I, you know, I really wanted to say how much I appreciated your chapter on singleness and ministry and the way in which you... Um, I think fully rightly and really delicately uh, commend the possibility of single people being ministers within the church. Um, that's something th that you have done personally. Um, I'm curious to just hear you reflect on your own experience, what sort of challenges you have faced, what sort of things that those who are contemplating the ministry and are single might think about um, if they are uncertain whether they would like to get married or not, um, and and really what the value of that has been for the communities that you've been a part of. Yeah, I think that there are there are both challenges and opportunities um, being single in in any kind of pastoral ministry. That the challenge is that, particularly if you're in church leadership, the very role of leadership can, and probably should introduce a level of separation. Um, you're part of a body, you're still a member of the church, you're still a, you're a fellow disciple. But the, the very role of leadership can mean that you may not be as open with, with people as you would be if, if you weren't their pastor. So that, that can feel isolating if you're single, because if you were married, you, you know, those would be things you could process with your, with your spouse. Um, so I've, I found that there, is, there have been some some very rich friendships within my church family, but I've also needed some some deep friendships outside of the church family um, just to have that kind of, um, that sort of, you know, extra valve released to, to download ups and downs of, of ministry life with people who aren't immediately in my church family. So that's, that's one of the challenges. I, I've seen a lot of single people struggle with time off because church life can often be very relationally draining. If you, if you're any, Anywhere on the introvert side of things, you can spend all of your relational capital just doing a regular week of, of, of ministry. And by the time it comes to your, your day off, you don't have the energy to see people. You haven't actually planned anything. Uh, it's often the day, the one day for, for many people where they, they get to do their chores and their housework and their laundry and their shopping and all the rest of it. Which can then mean over, over a succession of weeks, that can build some very serious um, issues of, of isolation. I've, I've seen a lot of people get start to struggle with depression and 
thinking through how we do relational rest in a way that is um, we're actually giving forethought to and trying to plan around. I think church staffs, in as much as churches have staff teams, again, that's something they want to think about together, how we help the single people on staff not spend all their relational capital through the a kind of standard working week, but try to protect and help people to to have the energy to invest and, and deepen healthy friendships as well. So those are the challenges. I think on the opportunity side, I was I was really surprised working for a church which is is rammed full of families, lots of kids. It's a it's a kind of town where people move out of the city into the town to raise kids, good schools, you know, affordable housing, all that kind of stuff. Um, nice countryside, all those sorts of things. Um, I was thinking, how's this going to work given I'm single and the vast majority of the people in the church family are parents or, the, or, or children of the parents? And a couple of things surprised me. One was that some people found me particularly approachable precisely because I wasn't married and didn't have kids. And so if they were wanting to share an issue they were, were wrestling with in their marriage or with parenting... I seem to be less threatening than someone who they might perceive as having these things all kind of sewn up and all all together. Um, Issues where Christian parents might differ with each other over whether you homeschool or state school, whether you use this routine or that routine. Again, people felt able to share and work through some of those things with me because of my perceived neutrality on that. Um, I've noticed with, with Christian parents that any minor disagreement is often taken to be a criticism of the other person's entire way of parenting and therefore you're calling them a bad person and it it escalates very quickly Um, being single actually you can be a bit more of a I think a bit more approachable on those things the other thing I've I've noticed is that there's a there's an asymmetry when it comes to married pastors speaking about singleness from the pulpit and single pastors speaking about marriage from the pulpit. Um, It is much easier for me to say hard things to married people as a single person than it is for a married person to say things about singleness to single people Um, because we're all a bit better. And if a married pastor is saying, well, you know, these are the challenges of singleness, but these are the opportunities we're thinking, yeah, shut up. You're going home to your wife after this. So don't tell us what it's like. But I found if a married person is trying to challenge married people in the church about, you know, focusing, you know, making too much of their married life or whatever it might be, people often hear that as as being some reflection of the the pastor's own marriage. Right. Right. You know, oh, he's obviously he's obviously having a difficult time at home and is projecting that onto everybody else, <laughs> or he thinks his marriage oh, is so really? amazing. So again, it's there's certain sermons it's been easier for me to preach than for a married colleague to preach, and that that's just been very. I found that really interesting, and obviously, as as Paul says in in First uh, Corinthians seven, there's a there's a freedom and flexibility that comes with being single. That you know that it's easier for me to um, be out more evenings and weekends than it might be for a married colleague. Um, we want to keep an eye on that so that the single person isn't you know, missing out on the, the relationships that they need. But there's a, there's a flexibility as well that, that actually can be 
a real help in a in a local church context. Yeah. Speaking of which, okay, this brings me to my question, and this is started to get towards the practical, but I'm I'm thinking about you. So you've got a chapter here. Uh, singleness. One myth is that singleness is too hard. That's your first one, right? And then the last one is singleness is easy. That's another myth, right? And so navigating there, there's there's kind of like a tension. They're, they're not actually contradiction contradict contradicting each other, but there's a tension there set up. And I, I was just wanting to maybe have you speak to that for, for uh, folks thinking about, especially folks in pastoral ministry, thinking about how to um, acknowledge and, and, and walk with their, uh, with their single populations in both the, okay, this isn't too hard. This is, this is, this is understandable. This is manageable. This is, this is, this is an option. And then also, uh, but it's not always easy. Right. And so just kind of the, the, some of the practicality of, of, of walking with and working with that, that, that kind of tension. So hoping you could speak to that a little. Yeah, we're, we're all inconsistent. And so we, we can think something is too hard and nice and easy at the same time. Um, and the ways in which something is hard are often different to the ways in which it's easy. But I've seen both assumptions, certainly in, in a local church context where, again, people don't really want to be single or they see that as a, as a, you know, a, a, a sentence to a life of loneliness or whatever it might be. But at the same time, I've heard people sort of assume, oh, if you're single, you're carefree because you don't have my problems in my home life, um, my problems with my marriage, my problems with my kids. You've got it easy. And, you know, neither marriage or singleness is is problem-free, but the, the problems that come with marriage are different to the problems that come with singleness. Um, the opportunities that come with marriage are different to the opportunities that come with singleness. And just as we can compare the the ups of marriage with the downs of singleness and think singleness is too difficult, similarly, we can compare the downs of marriage with the ups of singleness and think, oh, singleness looks easy. And it, it's always going to be our tendency, I think, to assume the grass is greener on the other side of the fence, whichever side we happen to be on at, at any given moment. Um, and there are going to be some particular challenges that are, are going to land on single people more heavily than married people and the other way around, which is why I think we need to be part of the blessing and, and obligation of, of being part of a church community is learning the, the unique ups and downs that all the other people face in their lives, understanding those things and using the fact that your ups and downs are different. Uh, actually, that becomes a means of of ministry it means that actually we can carry each other because we have differing burdens um so i wanted to be in that last chapter um i wanted to be quite open about the things i've particularly found painful um spent a lot of time sounding out other single people to see whether these were just unique to me or whether they were a bit more common among other singles and, and found that they were more common um because they're things that you might not always intuit if you're married um, or even notice if you're married. So I just wanted people to, to be aware of that as well and not to think just because Paul talks about singleness being advantageous in certain ways, that that means it's it's a walk in the park and, and you know, single people don't need to be cared for or worried about or any of those sorts of things. On that subject, I'd be interested to hear some of your thoughts on the difference 
in some of the struggles surrounding singleness for men and women. Um, I imagine that there are a number of differences in that particular area. And what you describe about the grass being greener, in my experience, the loneliest people I know are married. Um, I mean, not saying married people in general are lonely, but by far the loneliest people I know are married people in unhappy marriages. And that isn't something that a single person, for all their loneliness, probably doesn't have to experience that sort of devastating loneliness of that type. Um, I, I, I agree entirely. And I've... I've seen enough marriages up close, both as a, as a friend and as a pastor, to see that if I had to choose between being lonely in singleness or lonely in marriage, I'd choose lonely in singleness any day of the week. Um, that is a unique pain of being in a lonely marriage. Um, so I think there are, there are different challenges for, for men and women when it comes to singleness. And there are also different challenges across the, the age range as well. The, the challenges of being single in your 20s and 30s are very different to the challenges of being single in your 50s and 60s and 70s. So as well as there being a, a kind of uh, a gender variation, there's all, also an age variation as well. And I think a lot of our churches, when they think singleness, they're thinking primarily of 20s and 30s and not yet married and not necessarily giving enough thought to those who are single again, either through divorce or bereavement, um, or those who've never married but are now in their 40s and 50s. And it just looks very, very different at each stage of life. Um, there are different opportunities. There are, are different challenges and different pains. Um, for, for many women I know, um, the, the pain of thinking, you know, there's a, there's a, a constraint on, on when you may be able to have kids and when you pass that stage, that can be a a particular grief for single women in a way that it isn't quite for single men because we still might think, well, it's still possible one day that I might become a parent. Um, we don't have the same physical, monthly, biological reminder um, of, you know, that there's a sense in which our, our body is, if we're a woman, has, has been designed to bear children and therefore we're we're seeing that. I remember Bethany Jenkins writing very powerfully about this, um, about turning 40 childless. Um, she wrote a great piece for TGC a while ago on that and just how that monthly reminder of the fact that her, her body in one sense is saying, hey, I'm, I'm geared up for, for childbearing. Um, so it, that, that aspect lands on women differently. Um, I think women generally, with all the caveats implied by that, do friendship more easily than men tend to. I think particularly when you get into mid-30s and, and beyond. Um, I've read another number of articles recently in secular places about just how difficult it can be to, to make a new friendship when you're a married man who's already kind of well into his career because it's just not something we, we do very easily. And it should be easier in churches, and I hope it, I hope it would be. But the loneliness can land on a, a middle-aged man, I think, differently to how it can land on a middle-aged woman. And also the way in which people might be ready to involve you in family life will be different. I know some women who love the fact that people presume that they're up for helping with 
childcare and all those sorts of things. I know other women who who find that really difficult that they people just assume they'll want to help babysit. Um, for me as a man, I, I sometimes find it painful when people assume, oh, we can't ask Sam to babysit because he's a guy. Um, and if I say, hey, I'm, I'm really happy if you teach me how to change a diaper, I'll do it. And you kind of see them looking at me quizzically and thinking, no, um, you're a guy. Of course, you're not going to learn how to do that. So there's some weird things kind of perception wise, both ways. Um, that I think, again, land differently on, on men and women. I think that's a really valuable point, and um, I, you've made it just exceptionally well. And I think it's it's worth remembering that different doesn't necessarily mean greater or less. So with respect to male infertility, um, they men feel it, but it's more subtle, right? And I yeah. think it is actually important to highlight that as well, because a lot of... Um, a lot of the attention in infertility discussions goes towards women for, for pretty obvious reasons, but the burden of male based infertility is, is pretty invisible to, to even men themselves. And it plays out in ways that they often don't realize. And I think, you know, like that, that sense of, um, sort of what's obvious and what's hidden, um, is, is really important in seeing how they do impact men and women differently mm, that's a good point in concluding um would you be able to give some thoughts on two particular fronts first of all what can single people practically do to realize a sense of their calling and or god's um pl- a role for ministry in their lives things like that the ways that they can use their condition and also how they can practically improve their situation so it's a, an ideally, ideally a healthier one, emotionally, spiritually, and in other ways. And then how churches can make the most of the single people within them, have, how they can serve them, and how married couples, others like that. How can we make the world a healthier place for single people? And how can single people do that for themselves as well? I love that you started all of that with, in conclusion, as if that's just a kind of, we can, we can wrap that up in 30 <laughs> seconds. Um, I, I think for, for single people, it's, it's, it's one of those things where the, the danger in, in church life is we're, we're more conscious of what we think other people should be doing than what we should be doing. And it's very easy for the wider church to look at the opportunities a single person has and think, well, you guys should be signing up to serve in everything. Um, and to put the pressure on to do that. And I know some churches where the expectation is, if you're single, we expect you to be doing stuff at church four or five evenings a week. And I'm not really thinking through, actually, are we serving the single people? Are we just assuming they're a commodity to be used? And at the same time, I don't want the single person to be, you know, I want the single person to be asking, what is the the most that I can do while I'm single? Um, What are things I could do by way of service that I wouldn't be able to do and won't be able to do if I get married. Um, and let, why don't I make the most of that now while I can, whether that's, you know, going on a missions trip for a, a month in the summer, whether it's signing up to something at a slightly antisocial time, um, whether it's giving myself to, you know, a slightly visiting pastorally or, or something in the church. So I'd love single people to think, what are the unique opportunities I have now? And, whether or not I remain single 
is by the by, I want to make the most of being single while I am single. And then the church thinking, how can we serve the single people as they seek to do that? Rather than the church thinking, how can we squeeze the last drop of energy out of them? Um, <laughs> so it, 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 there's challenges both ways. It's easy for the singles to feel marginalized and to kind of adopt a slight victimhood thing and think we're not being properly catered for and we're just going to sit over here and wait for the world to notice us and i think one of the challenges for, for singles is to think actually we we need to be taking initiative as well in in offering hospitality it's not the job of the family to seek out the single person it's the job of all of us to be thinking through how we can open up our lives to to serve and include others um so it's it's always easy to be thinking about what the what the other group should do, whoever the other group is, rather than thinking, actually, what is the most we can do? So for the single people not to be thinking, well, all the families should be doing this, and for the church not to be thinking, all the single people need to be doing this, um, but thinking, what can we do? And I think the more we the more we better understand each other, the better our instincts will become about how we can serve one another as, as married people, as single people. That's, that's, that's really helpful. That's a great note to end on here. Sam, thank you so much for coming on and uh, spending this time with us. It was great to have you on as a guest. Oh, it's such a pleasure. I'm, a, I'm so grateful for this podcast. So thanks for having me on. Yeah. And if you have been listening, uh, obviously, once again, the book is Seven Myths About Singleness out with Crossway. I'm sure you could pick it up either at Crossway itself, Amazon, uh, all, all, the, all the general retailers. Uh, but if you've been listening, thank you so much uh, for tuning in. We hope that you will continue to listen. We also want to have a special thank you for our Patreon subscribers. Thanks for helping us keep the lights on. And if you'd like to learn more about how you can help uh, support the Mere Fidelity podcast, you can just go ahead and check us out at mereorthodoxy.com and uh, the uh, info is there. Or if you wanted to rate and review us at iTunes, that would be immensely helpful. But for now, uh, thanks for uh, listening and this has been Mere Fidelity. <laughs> <laughs>